This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club. So many favorite, 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 favorite things about this month. Primarily our author. She is no stranger to our little community here, and she's just near and dear to me as a person. So we are bringing Kate Bowler on today. You may remember her from our Quarantine Queen series back in 2020, and then a pretty fascinating premium bonus episode we did with Kate on toxic positivity. So if you haven't listened to either of those already, you will want to. So if you don't already know her and follow her, Kate is a Durham, North Carolina-based New York Times bestselling author. She's a podcast host and low-key a professor at Duke University. She's been featured, honestly, everywhere that matters. NPR, Today Show, Washington Post, I mean, all of it, all the things. She actually wrote the first history of the prosperity gospel, which is a fascinating read. Then at 35, Kate was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And this obviously caused her to completely rethink her research, her beliefs, And that ultimately led to her memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, where she pretty vulnerably walks us through her struggle with the American belief that all tragedies are tests of character. Obviously, you will want to and should read everything she's ever written and consume her podcast. But today we're going to talk to her about her latest book, No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear where she walks us through her diagnosis and her faith as she comes to terms with limitations in a culture that promises us that anything is possible, right? So you guys hold on to your hats. This is a good one. Our other pal, Glennon Doyle, said this about her. Kate Bowler is the only one we can trust to tell us the truth. Can you think of a better endorsement than that? I love her. I love her. I love her. I respect her. I admire her. I enjoy her. I read everything she writes and I believe her. So couldn't be more pleased to share this conversation with the extraordinary Kate Bowler. I've read, I think, everything you've ever written, both in book form and on an Instagram post and everything in between. This is some of my favorite of your writing. How do you feel about this book? It's my favorite book. Is it? It is. It's kind of my status. But to be honest, I felt I was just so grateful to have, you know, when you just can't believe you ever got somewhere, like you have a moment where it feels like a good thought kind of ripened and you're like, I feel ready 
to enjoy these good thoughts. And that is my only definition of like every now and then we get little glimpses of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the great privileges of writing memoir is we actually, as part of our job, get a minute to say, am I somewhere different now than I was before? And in this case, I finally felt like I was able to say, I'm not sure I would have believed myself, but you, even in your finitude, were worth more than you thought. Was this hard to write? Or did you find it therapeutic and cathartic or both? Mm, There was a big chunk of it that I didn't know if I could write because partly maybe as a historian, I'm like really trained to stay in my lane. So if you ask me about anything else, I'd be like, I couldn't possibly comment on insert any noun. That's true. That's not really commentary space. Yeah. That's factual. So then when I got to my experience in the medical system, I really felt like I had to understand a lot more than I did. So I I did a lot more research than, but it turns out that that's really what I needed to be able to ask myself the question, why does sometimes the systems that we're in make us feel like we're worthless or that our fragility should be counted against us? And can we even have enough information to make the choices that sometimes, like in my case, very literally save us. But like, what if we don't get to have everything we need to know to be in the right place at the right time? And how scary is that? And like, how do I live with that? And so I needed to be able to look back and say, given what I knew as like a little baby cancer patient, did I make the right choice? Could anyone have helped me? Could things have been different? And the answers to that question was much more painful than I To be honest, I was surprised by the ending. I was surprised that so many of us in that trial died. I was so surprised that I should have known more from my doctors. And I was surprised to kind of get a clearer view of the brokenness of that system. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because now, of course, you're even more deeply embedded in the system. You've had even more experience. The tendrils keep sort of for better and for worse, like connecting to your story. So what now with, we can barely call it the benefit of hindsight, but a little bit, yeah, a little bit more hindsight than you had at this writing. Have you concluded about some of those systems and some of the systemic issues, if you will, inside them? Something it took me a long time to kind of figure out is that in the United States, and it's like different in every combination of a national healthcare system and a series of private ones is that there's a bunch of different actors involved in helping you figure out your care. And one of them is your hospital system and all the people that are in-house that are subsidized to care for you. You want to go where that $20 copay is. And like, that's, I mean, if you can afford the health insurance in the first place. But anything outside of that, you start to kind of get out into the jungles of how decisions are made. I didn't know that one of the major actors inside the healthcare system is the power of pharmaceutical companies because hospitals don't have enough money inside of them to develop and test a lot of these drugs. So they develop these partnerships. These partnerships, of course, based on who has the money, are asymmetrical. And so depending on what the drug is and, the you know, you can find yourself in a surprisingly fragile situation when you have something that's a little bit rare. Now, as the drug develops, you can slowly kind of become a consumer. But at first, you're not a consumer. You're a test case. You think you're a patient, but you're not. If you're lucky, you're a patient. You can tell if you're a patient is if you have a healthcare provider of any kind who knows you enough to say, is this really what's best for you? Without accidentally being influenced or maybe on purpose being influenced by this asymmetrical partner. Now, as an academic, I know that, like, there's so little money, you know, you always are just so grateful that someone wants to look at your research. But if you have too many healthcare actors in a row that are putting you inside of a slipstream that will largely benefit a pharmaceutical company, you accidentally might end up with some pretty bad care. And so I ended up with, like, organs hovering, you know, at the threshold of toxicity. I couldn't use my fingers and my toes. I would, like, fall over all the time. It was just absurd. And If I'd had the information I had now, I would have realized, Kate, you have connections, you know other people, you could figure out a way to become more of a consumer in this and choose something else. But instead, and it's partly because I am so absurdly compliant, you know, I just wanted to follow doctor's orders and I wanted to be the good patient. 
And we're told all along they have our best interests in mind and they are trustworthy and they know what they're talking about. And they're the adult in the room that we are just now entering. Yeah. So you're not wrong to feel that way. That makes sense. It was like a real grab bag of not feeling fully empowered as a woman, feeling like maybe I just don't know enough to ask and maybe there's a reason why this is. Yes. And then just being so scared because I genuinely didn't have enough money to solve the problem. I really even tried pricing it out like needle by needle for my own care. And I discovered like it was going to end up being about $75,000 a month. So it was really terrifying to think, oh my gosh, like I'm going to cost everybody everything. So all that helplessness made a lot of sense. But to be honest, I had a hard time almost forgiving myself for feeling quite so helpless. One thing I have going for me is I'm really smart. And so I was like, shouldn't I have like figured this out? But the truth is someone was wearing a white coat in a hospital that I'd been to a million times before. I didn't think that there was another way. And I think a lot of us end up in systems. And I guess maybe this is my definition of structural evil is when a system functions correctly for itself and still produces too many victims. I think everything they did was right by their own standards. And that's what makes me know that it was wrong. I'm applying that all of a sudden it's another systems going when it works as intended. Yeah. And continues to pile up the victims. And in the end, they tested a drug that a lot of people are using. And so if you use the long view, there are always lambs. But when you don't know you're a lamb, it can be really difficult to kind of figure out who you are after that. Like, like, but do I still have value, honestly? Like, wasn't I frankly like somewhat expendable? And you feel expendable because you feel ridiculous. You know, you're like tired and sick and poor and you just, you're no longer the indestructible whatever that you ever hoped you would be. So I guess maybe that's why this book felt like I learned to trust myself by writing it and that. I really hope that's like gone down deep where there's like, I'm standing on a platform I wouldn't have been able to build otherwise. For the benefit of everybody listening, because (laughs) with no cure, we go back a notch in your story. But I wonder if you could just for a minute talk about from the end of this book to where we are now before we get back into here. Because I want to discuss, there's just so much in here. Like there's physical systemic issues around healthcare in America and capitalism. And then there's like squishy inside things about expectations and what is a good life and what do we deserve? What do we deserve? What do we owed? We've got internal and externals here and I want to do both, but I wonder if you could just talk a little bit, like update everybody listening. There's the acuteness of the tragedy of being diagnosed. And then there's just kind of the ongoingness of it where I had to kind of keep having to make these. At first, it was sort of like there was a life or death surgery and trying to make all the dramatic decisions. But then it was just life, which is I got scanned with more and more time in between. And I started being able to ask myself, am I okay? And really, every now and then, I would get like a bumpy result and that made me all of a sudden be like, oh my gosh, am I not am I not okay? And it was the slow accumulation of realizing that my life and really everybody's life is trying to develop a higher and higher tolerance for uncertainty, for just not knowing how it was going to go. And since then, I've been doing really well with intermittent wrenches thrown in. Like I continue to grow new basically precancerous things. And we kind of wonder if there's something wrong with me genetically, but no one has been able to figure that out. So I have to go back all the time for these sort of horrible updates where they're like, do you have leprosy plus? And I'm like, I don't. (laughs) No, we test me. I don't. Everyone can still hug me. But that has been kind of the long game is figuring out how to appropriately set the dial on fear. I've set it to medium aware. And then have to really dial up courage. So then I would like to live a beautiful, ridiculous life without awareness, but with a lot more chutzpah. And you've had, when was it that you kind of pop onto the internet and you're like, good news, everybody. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and 
It's faster, bro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, Jen, because like remission is a word that makes sense for me now. Like I don't have any cancer in me right now, which is so wonderful. And I kind of just want that to feel like a chapter that is shockingly, incredibly done. And then I'll have to get skinned in a couple more months. And all of it is just, I kind of want to, I try to set, remember those Smokey the Bear, is there a forest fire predictor? I just feel like I'm always at like where yellow touches orange. And I can genuinely live with that. That's fine. We're going to stay there. Yeah. I'm experiencing this cycle that you're talking about with Tyler, you know, my person, and he's got cancer and it's ongoing and it's all the scans and it's constantly like, well, what's grown, you know? And so it's like in these almost like six month spurts of life yeah. that, okay, this is where we're at. This is where we'll be for the next six months. And then we'll see where it is then. Yeah. And is those dials, setting those dials outside of expectations. And you talk a lot about that in No Care, which I want everybody to know. Of course, my book club was reading this, but for everybody else just listening in, because this is on the broader channel, this is a book about cancer, but it's not It's not a book about cancer. It's, it's a book about this is a kind of life I thought I was going to have. I signed up for it. I mean, I know you and I both put in the proper ingredients in the template I plugged into the formula and I went, I am great at formulas. Really? Like I, I follow rules. I'm achiever. I know how to do it all. I can accomplish all the pieces that will hand me a happy life. Yes. And I thought that I did. I remember thinking that about parenting. Like I will do the program. The children will emerge wholehearted, successful, obedient, they will make good choices endlessly, yes. you know? Yes. It's just, it's, it's just. Yeah, parenting prosperity gospel, marriage prosperity gospel, work prosperity gospel. I love them. I mean, the only reason I keep writing about God wanting to give us health, wealth, and happiness is that it sounds awesome. It's such a good idea. It's kind of the best idea, like, if there were fewer design flaws, like the fact that we grilled and die if we're just very lucky or the fact that most people's lives come apart at some point. Or some of the formulas only work for white people. Yes. Like there's problems. There's problems. There are flaws. And the older we get, obviously, those become clearer, more real, more true, more realized in our actual lives naturally. And so I want to hear you first talk about that whole idea of I don't know if it's fair to say younger versions of ourselves. That's certainly true, but it can go past age. I don't know that it's age bound, but this idea, like having a dream and expectation, frankly, for the kind of life that we want to live, the dream life, the dream life thing. I'd like to just hear you talk about that. Do you think this is uniquely American? You're a historian, so you bring to the discussion a lot of broader context. Do you think it's uniquely evangelical? I'd like to hear your thoughts on the origin story here. Well, let's try all the arguments because I like each one that you just said. For instance, let's just say, how American is it? It's so American. For the last 150 years, most of the dominant American ideologies have talked us into an aggressive individualism where everything good is because you did it and it has to be done alone. I am the master of my something and the captain of my something, rather. Every monologue is like, <laughs> and I was going to sing I did it my way, but the truth is I don't even know that song. I only know that one phrase. It was going to go badly. So it is deeply American. It's also, individualism is more American than anything else. 
And so is instrumentalism. And this really is close to my heart, which is the idea that everything has to be for something. It's this like aggressive practicality where we can't just have something good. We have to have like the science of joy and the 12 steps to this. And like the desire to break everything down, like it's just a Ford motor operation of building a car is, I mean, I love it because I love a plan, but constant instrumentalization where things can never be good in and of itself, they're only useful, is also fundamentally an American trait. And we get stuck in these modes where everything has to be accomplished and by me. And that locks us into a progress model where we we didn't realize it, but we're climbing a ladder. We thought we were just standing there, but no, get up. I guess the second argument, which I love that you said evangelical, I would say that there's a lot in our own faith traditions that and this goes for people who come from maybe evangelical or Pentecostal into this like deep pietism where we expect that our emotions are going to tell us something true about God. We did also inherit an achiever model where have you had your quiet time? And there's this checklisty feeling that God's going to be mad otherwise. And and it really kind of can lock a lot of us into a feeling that spirituality is also something that we do in order to. And and this really got locked in, especially in the 1970s, when focus on the family and all the really dominant forms of popular evangelicalism told us that we had to be not just good, but seen to be good. And in these like seamless kinds of public ways, and that would be the gospel. Like how will non-Christians know that we're whatever? And it's because like focus on the family, like look, just look at us. Aren't we shining? And that can also lock us into a very Instagram-y way of trying to be good, better, best all the time. Okay, so let's say it's let's say it's evangelicalism and Pentecostalism. Let's say it's American. Let's also just say it's this thing called New Thought, which just means the earliest religious denomination that formed around manifesting. The idea that all good thoughts actually create good realities, and then by contrast, all bad thoughts create bad realities. The idea that we think that we are the power of our minds is rampant in popular culture and now makes us believe that it's not just our shiny Christmas card version. It's like every thought we have is actually an opportunity to make progress. And that has made basically every aspect of our life is forcing us into becoming these little achievement cyborgs. And I want it so badly. You could see me white knuckling my way into wanting to be good. In and I moment. love it. <laughs> what a system. <laughs> the problem is, and by the loveliest definition of heresy, it's just a quarter turn away of something that we wish were true. And it forces us into this like American trap where it makes all tragedy into tests of character, all tragedies into failures. And so all of us then feel the oppressive weight. And because none of us can live up to it, not in the long run. I mean, maybe for two weeks after New Year's, but then good luck. Right. Isn't it interesting, though, that it really takes the softest touch to topple the whole house of cards. It's not a difficult theory to dismantle. It's not. It's simply not. Like, it doesn't hold sturdy until, like, layer seven when we go, oh, but you don't know about layer eight. Like, it's pretty easy to dismantle simply because of life and observation and experience and (laughs) truth. Why? Why do we hang on so hard? What is its power over us? Yeah. Yeah. Even uh, I am listening to you talk. I know this. Like, I have access to this information. I am resourced. I know this. I could look right now, okay, at my calendar and show you the ways in which I'm still galloping the horse to, like, to do the thing. What is its power? It doesn't work. No. Well, first of all, I'm going to try a bunch of arguments. We'll see which one works because I'm not sure, but I really love what you just said about the soft sister. And Jen, I think you're so right. And you're, because you're right. 
I studied the prosperity gospel for 10 years, and it makes me wish I had to be like, no, Jen, you have to read on page 275 how I unlock the actual. And you're like, no, no, no. I found the secret. We can all see it. Yeah, it's in the prelude. Like, it's in the the forward someone else wrote. Like, <laughs> Now I kind of want some of those years back, but I really like where you're, I really like this argument. Okay, so let's pretend that I have three arguments, but one of them would be that part of the reason why it fails is that it's not supposed to work for everybody, that it only works because in our hearts, we want it to work for us, not for everyone, Mm. is that it is also a gospel of comparison. Ouch. That's why it grew up with the rise of the very first large American cities, is that we needed to explain why some people rose and other people fell. So it really, it works best as being the argument for the biggest house on the street. Yeah. I want everyone to see, because we're trying to render explicit what we're hoping people are implicitly knowing about us. And maybe that's a good second argument is it doesn't work, but the problem is all the things that we actually need to be true about ourselves, people can't see them. And then we just need to render them visible. So like... In a perfect world, it would be like, do I have the fruits of the Spirit? Do I have the primary virtues? Do I have hope? Do I love? Do I have patience, forbearance, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But in truth, like, you won't know my value unless I show you in some way. And so we, then we get locked into like, well, then how would I? So I think we accidentally become instrumentalists because of the things we fear about ourselves and that maybe other people won't know or love us in the same way if we didn't win in some measurable way, because this is about metrics. Like it wouldn't, it's not the prosperity gospel and it's not health and wellness unless there's some kind of barometer of achievement. I feel predisposed to its trappings. Like I'm particularly wired to chase this rabbit and keep hoping that around maybe the next bit, it'll do what it said. Like it'll do the thing. And let's be honest, in some ways, it has worked. Sure. In some ways, it has worked. I have been rewarded in some ways. Yeah. So. Yeah. And there's other bits where I can see that were I not like this, because there are some moments where I did save my own life, where I did like get up again. And that's because I was like holding on to every rung of that ladder and I was like going to will myself to climb. And I think that's what's so tricky about like what we're talking about is it gets to this really weird, intense place of spiritual discernment. Like where is wisdom found in this? And it's in that small sliver of agency. Like what is actually that you are able to do and yours to do? And I have, I think, honestly, I find that to be one of the most interesting like intellectual topics, but when can people try and when is it worth trying? And when does trying then become the disease Mm. or when is it the cure? Like I am really into that because I love American cultural stories. And so we have all these scripts about how we love a certain kind of trying, which is the sort of nightmare version that we all secretly love. But then there's this like pretty deep set of spiritual philosophical questions in there about like a God who does still ask us to try. We could have the progress model or the refined version of that, the like stripped down to just the beautiful gold is sanctification, is that we are put on this earth so that God can change us. Like progress in some ways, actually part of our Christian journey. So like, how do we get to that place? How do you splice that out? Yeah, that feels like there's something in there about Mm. vocation, about discernment, also the fact that God knows that we love to try. Like, I mean, there's a reason why we make things and we don't just like sit around. Actually, that's not true. I was going to say gazing at the stars, but my friend saw a man on the plane the other day and he was, he sat in the same position on an international flight for seven hours. And my friend was like, are you on drugs? Which is a really good guess. And like, he saw how like the pilot came back to talk to him and he wondered, is this a medical emergency? And it turns out that he was simply a poet contemplating the miracle of flight. I'm going to let only him do it. And I'm going to be very busy knocking out my emails. But some people are built for just contemplation. The rest of us want to get beep done. We do. And that is also in us that God knows that we love to try. What do you think, you just throw it against the wall, what do you think some of the markers are that that sense of like creation or trying, I like the plain word trying, 
because that's what it is. Just fill in the gap, whatever it is trying toward. But that sense of like trying and development and growth. What do you think some of the markers are that identify that effort as something inside wisdom Mm -hmm. or something inside kind of the saccharine version of it? Yeah. Well, a lot of the medieval tradition was really obsessed with this question. And so they were like, oh, I'll tell you. And they made lists on lists. And that's called the oh. scholastic tradition. <laughs> They're just like, I was... you want to read a bunch of lists? Enjoy the scholastic. <laughs> but like what they, what they, their answer to it was like, well, let's take the virtues and let's try to distill arguments about that, about how we should change our behavior. But that is almost always a really good place to start is what in this trying cultivates some of the fruits of the spirit like yeah. hope, joy, love. And so is there some of that? And when, and that's, I kind of like that language, I guess, because I'm a very kind of sensitive, emotional person. And a lot of the language is really emotional. So you can tell if you're cultivating love. You can, you know, you don't need like a scientist to come in and like beep, yeah. beep, boop. And so I find those, that language to be kind of helpful. I guess the other one is the telos, right? Is we ask like, to what end? And if the end is always, you can have a pretty damning, or lovely answer when you say to what end. And sometimes, and I think that we can we can have a good end without then having to demonize all the like, of course we participate in capitalism, or of course we participate in a consumer economy of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But like, what will be the end of my, like, what's the summation of my life and the way that it moves these webs of love? That's a good one. That's good. I like that. I kind of wonder though, Jen, is like, but some of it also gets into that, and I think that's why we love a like, good language of vocation, is sometimes trying is in an area in which, like, we kind of lost the spirit of it. And that takes a, a minute to say, like, not just, like, is the work good or does it cultivate these, you know, good virtues, but, like, but am I called to try in that area? And I think one thing I can, like, always tell about you is, like, you love serving particular people, like people in particular. And that's how you know you're called to them as opposed to just like, I mean, you would also make an amazing news anchor. You'd also make an, like you could have been doing a million other things, but like called to is also a nice way of being like, am mm. I supposed to be, is this trying good trying? Mm. Those are great. Mm. I think those are great. And Look, there's, I love a good list. I like it. You no, know, I do. I'm so analytical sometimes. I'm so list-based. And so sometimes I'm like, wizard, give me a heart. Like, <laughs> I just, I, I just up here <laughs> thinking my thoughts. <laughs> wizard, give me a heart. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I like those metrics. And I think I can also, most of us probably have the capacity to get real quiet and real internal and really go inward and know, just know. I know mm-hmm. where my heart is on this thing. I know what my motivations are. I know what the end game I'm actually after is, regardless of what I say or do. Like, I know what I'm actually, I, I think we can probably know that internally, which sometimes requires a reckoning and sometimes it's validating. Like, I've concluded both sides of that equation on self examination, like, doesn't feel good in my bones. That reminds me of something. Luke Powery is the dean of the chapel here at Duke. And his question for whether he should keep doing something is after a bit, he's like, he says it in a cute way, but he's like, are you having fun? But like, actually, that's kind of a great way of figuring out if there's like joy in your purpose. Yeah, I don't hate it. Listen, he managed to be all the way at your fancy university. He's got to know something. Sheesh. I want to go back, back into No Cure. And I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about, because zero of us plan or envision a life that includes a cancer diagnosis. That's not a part of our our, our mood board ever, you know, ever. Can you imagine if one of the moods was cancer? Cancer. I'd like to see how it feels. I'd just like to try it on for so I see if I can conquer it. <laughs> oh my gosh, Jen, that's an amazing idea. If yeah, you- let's just see. Let's see <laughs> what all the fuss is about. But And you were young. Were you, were you 35? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, it's so it's a baby. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. And so <laughs> I just, I want to, I'd like just, I know you've talked at length about this, but like in the context of all these things that you and I are talking about right now, expectations, plans, yeah, all of it. Can you go back into your brain and really deeply like recall what that felt like to you at the time? Yeah. And it's a weird kind of like, I think one of the ways in which I could tell that I'm different is the way that I run the math in my mind on this one thing, which is before I had like forever math. I just thought that everything I was doing was an investment in something. I was like building a thing and it was going to pay off later. And it really was this kind of like just putting it in a bank. And it's all mine. It's there. It's my future. My future is this thing I have invested in. And then in a phone call, everything was gone. And everything I thought I'd paid in was now being reduced to like nine months, maybe max. And then it's going to be my last Christmas. And it's my son's birthday. And it'll be the the last one I could ever buy him a present. Like, I just... I really, really kept thinking about all the ways that you try to decide if something's worth it. And that really, like, that, that, like, broke something for me. And I really don't hate what it did. Because, like, I think if I look back now, truth is, the things that you invest in, if you knew they were going to end, you couldn't have, you couldn't have even invested in it. Marriages are like that. Stupidly long degrees are like that. Like, mm. You can make reasonable guesses about your life, and you can be wrong. It doesn't mean that it was a bad investment. Or maybe it was, and you get to decide. But I had this doctor friend, and he died too fast, too soon, and he didn't get the end like I did, where, like, actually I lived. And when I looked at his life and I looked at my life, which were so similar, I realized, I was like, Kate, you overpaid you overpaid on stuff that you thought was going to be your forever plan. You need to really, you need to really revisit how much things are worth. It, does it go into the treasure bank of now? Are you going to save a little bit for the future? But you have to do, everybody has to file taxes. Everybody has to like, none of us get to live in the present. <laughs> we don't. We're always filing it away. But the other turn I realized is like, Kate, if you feel like you don't have enough, look back, like, look at what you had. And like, it is also the treasures are there too. And like, this future, endless future thinking is going to always feel like it's not enough if you don't learn how to like do better math with the past, present, and future. Like, that changed something in me. I was like, also, I'm not sure I would have gotten a PhD. I like having a PhD. Would I spend 10 years? Question mark. Traveling around, visiting megachurches? Maybe. I don't know. I do love that iteration of your life. (laughs) 
a mega church. <laughs> just me and a, and a notebook. like Write your little notes. Hundreds of hours. My son, if he hears Tammy Faye's voice, just from the hundreds of hours he heard as a baby, he still dances. He doesn't know who that is. It's like in him. The sound of his childhood. <laughs> it's so weird. I do like being that weird, though. Oh, I just have one more question for you. I'd like to hear you talk a little bit. I mean, obviously, you are a person of faith in every way. Practically, emotionally, spiritually, professionally. Like, <laughs> you pretty much are, you're checking all the boxes. I like to touch all of them. You do. You do. You're very covered. <laughs> you're very saved. I'm, ha- I'm happy for your security. Except when I win at beer pong, I do want you to know I am an ugly winner. Oh, I, you know, that draws me to you, doesn't push me away. So you knew to say that on purpose. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what the last five years have done to your faith and what has changed and if anything, and are there tender spots still there? Did you leave something behind or pick up something new? I'm just leading the witness, but mm. just because also, as earlier mentioned in our conversation, there's a faith element to the do the things, get the life. Yeah. Big time. There is. So, yeah. Anyway, okay. That. Well, because the thing that broke the achiever model was feeling so worthless in the hospital system and feeling so intensely loved and intensely loved when I was my most angry at God and my most useless in terms of my endless productivity. And like that really did stick with me as one of the things I believe now more than ever is I'm not really big into like the promises of God whisper voice where like, and we are granted the, and then list, list, list. I actually think we kind of don't get a lot of guarantees in this life, but one of them is definitely God's presence. And I mean, specifically, if God loves the brokenhearted, God loves the scared, God loves the, the like anybody who is like, oh, now would be a good time. Like the promise of God's presence in those moments is genuinely guaranteed. And the harder things get, and this is not an emotive argument, this is just a statement of proximity, is you will never be alone. And the great fear of going through anything is the despair and then the lie that you are alone and you're actually the only person who's ever gone through that. And I'm pretty sure it's not going to turn out well. And that kind of love is one of the only antidotes I know to despair, which is I'm actually not alone. It is true that I don't know when it'll end. It is true that I'm not promised that it's going to turn out the way that I want. But like, there will be beauty in there somewhere. I am guaranteed. I'm guaranteed that kind of love. That stuck with me. The rest of it, a lot of it, man, I'm so much less into heaven. Heaven is wonderful. But like, I really want to figure out how to do this better. Like, not be so future thinking and kind of be able to... And I guess the other thing that I miss, honestly, is I miss the feeling that God works in this magical conspiracy to make all these tiny lessons into this thing that's actually going to make me feel pretty emotionally satisfied. I miss that, like, divine conspiracy feeling. Mm. I don't think that there's hidden lessons around every corner and that it's going to add up in a way that's obvious to me. But I miss the feeling of that kind of math, especially when I'm suffering. So I'm like, gosh, all you want to do is know it's going to add up somehow. And maybe it'll add up in the mythical whatnot, but like, I don't get to know that. And therefore, it is not satisfying. Yeah, that's a tough one to set sail. It just is tidy. You know, it offered a tidiness to life. Yeah. That felt like security once upon a time. But again, soft touch. It isn't really that hard to dismantle that that is not the obvious guaranteed outcome of any given anything. No. Oh, I used to love that. God, I really did too, Kate. Like, also, I, I think this is its cousin, like the deepest spiritual meaning and intervention for every rock in the sidewalk. Like it was placed there. Yeah. For a purpose, which would turn out to be very knowable, very movable. Yeah. I enjoyed that too. It's like life is this just movable, either sermon illustration or bachelor episode with a metaphorical date. Real, real fine line. I'm not rock climbing. I'm climbing the, scaling the walls of my fear into a, I guess like the other thing, and I feel it most acutely with people, is I want everything 
I want everything. I want to, I, I don't, I don't ever want to say I've lost something and I can't get it back. Like, what if I just lose something and I can't have it back? I know I can't have my body back. I, I could, I know it when I, I can see all my scars and I have to accept, like, I'm not going to look like that other person. I look like this one. But somehow, especially in relationships or, I just want to feel like nothing is lost. I know we can do some kind of long math about God holding all things in some future, and I do kind of believe that. But like right now, in the next 30 years, I wish I wish I wouldn't lose anything. I wish I could put it all in the same basket and like have it all at the same time, you know? And I just find that most beautiful things, we're giving them like, we get them intermittently, and then we get something and we lose something. You're right. It's, I want the basket feeling. That doesn't last long. I remember having it maybe when I was younger before I encountered hardship. Yeah. Yeah. And I also didn't know what else to wish for. So the handful of things I knew were all in the basket. And I'm like, how lovely. This is working. You know, I felt it the other day, though, because I was having such a hard day yesterday. And I've been trying to do this volunteer work with people when they can't. I'm, like, very sensitive about when people can't afford their medical care. So making food and sitting and eating with people who are in these like long-term care situations. And I thought the feeling would be, you know, mostly sadness because I'm reliving parts of what I experienced, but I could see the way they looked at my family. And I realized like they must be looking at what they think is a pretty full basket. And then of course I immediately felt guilty bad about all the things that I wished. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, like, I could turn that into a shift yeah. pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but I did have a second there where I was like, oh, I have a pretty full basket, yeah. which I'm not grateful for. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish there was more. Uh, yeah, and that's how I solved the problem of being a person. So thanks so much for uh, helping me do that. Yes, it's amazing. You've done it. I did it. Congratulations. Thank you. That's what this is. This, this is the real this puzzle. Is my vic- and you this did is it. my victory lap. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love you. And I, I appreciate the candor with which you do everything. I really do. I am only drawn to that at this stage of my life. Only. I'm only drawn to what feels true. I'm only drawn to the versions that aren't just a shiny penny. Uh-huh. And so I am, I'm really grateful for your leadership and for your willingness to talk about your personal life too, because that is where we can grab your story and like wrestle it down to the ground where everybody is. I mean, there's so much to your story, your life, your ideas, your thoughts that I just relate to like so deeply. I mean, I know you're talking about having cancer but I'm feeling like every feeling about losing my marriage. I'm like, yes, that's, I did not sign up for that. I did not sign on for that. I did the right things to not have that. And none of it worked. Zero of it worked. And so it's not the same, but some of the experiences. Yeah. And so oh, anyway, that's that's the that's the experience inside book club too. Everybody's like, she's spying on me. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. So just thank you. Like Jen, I have loved you. It's a labor. A million years, but I have and I have loved you especially when you have been broken and putting everything back together. I have been in awe. And if anyone hasn't heard her evolving faith sermon about the gardener, I hope that you replay that one because I wept my way through it. Mm-hmm. We don't always know when our baskets are too full or too empty. And you have been honest in a world that does not appreciate it. And I love you for that. They'll let you know, okay? They will let you know. Just don't know if you know that. They say what they want on the internet. They just say it right there. They just type those words right with their fingertips. Okay, truly, truly landing. But I just need to know this because all of our best writers in book club are obviously also readers. You're literally an academic. So if you could just tell us maybe just the last either couple of books that you're like, here, here, cheers, 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 or even a longtime favorite. I don't care, whichever one. Yeah. I just read a great book called Run Toward the Danger by Sarah Polly. She's the woman who directed Women Talking, that amazing movie that won the Oscar last year. And that book is, it is a- Is it memoir? 
It is a memoir about her life as a child actor and what she learned to tell about herself. And when she's like, these are the most dangerous stories I know, she means Ooh. it. It's oh. really good. Tell me the title one more time because I liked it. Run Toward the Danger by Sarah Polly. That one is wonderful. I love the book Acceptance by Emmy Netfield. And that is actually on the same topic that we've been talking about, about achievement. And it's also a memoir. She grows up in foster care and gets into Harvard. And that is not the good news story. It sounds like it's her trying to understand the meritocracy and the systems that she's in. And she's a gorgeous writer and like such a cool scrappy person that you mm. like root for her from second one. Oh yeah. I love memoir. Easily Me one too. of my favorite genres. It really is. Listed too. So I'm thrilled. What's your favorite memoir of all time? Do you have one? I didn't. I just sprung that question on you. I kind of when follow, people ask me those questions, I yeah. can't think of a book I've ever read in my human yes. life. <laughs> well, I guess I'm like I kind of fall in love, and I'm totally in love with Minka Kelly's memoir. Tell me everything. Oh, are you? I'm. I'm in love. Like in the first two chapters. No, first. I mean, I think it's the preface. She's like a peep show stripper and not sure how to dance, and you're like, you are a shocker, because you only think of her as like a Friday Night Lights character, and you don't realize that she is this, like... Lila McGarity. Unreal. Survivor and... But it's it's got... That memoir has poise to it. And, like, mm. it has wisdom. I'm 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 in love. Okay. Well, I mean, too bad she has to walk around looking like that. It's, it's unfortunate. We can't so, have it all. We cannot so have it all. Good luck on her basket. Get a little fuller <laughs> I know, I know. in the attractive I'm department. Like, Please stop making eye contact with me. Like, Too beautiful. Can't look directly at you. It's like hurting my feelings. Yeah, it's like when I get headaches from lasers, you know, it's just like immediate migraines. So totally. stressful. <laughs> All right, sis. Hey, thanks for being on today. You know, I like any excuse ever and always to talk to you about anything ever. So I love that's just you. true. Like I find you perfect in every way. So great. Thanks. If you ever just are like, I would you be interested in talking about marathoning? I'll be like, I don't yes. have a lot to say, but I'm interested in talking with you. Yeah. So yes. let's go. We can Google the distance and uh, just go from there. That's like knowable information. 26 point something. Oh. And then there's like some running involved and maybe some socks, some special socks. The cheering, which is our sweet spot. <laughs> <It's exactly laughs> yeah. right. All right, sis. Love you. Love you. Thank you. <laughs> 